going to be looking at scripture from 1 Samuel 17. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give, you, give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. For the, Lord, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground." So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read and reflect on it, we're reminded that it comes with promises, and that is that that you take it, you apply it to our hearts, and your spirit does that. So we pray this morning, Father, that your spirit would apply to our hearts these scriptures, Father, that you would... Speak life into the places where we need to hear life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us, uh, I guess last week and this week, uh, we are in the middle of a series looking at snapshots uh, in the life of David in the Old Testament, in the book of, of 1 Samuel. And we see lots of things about David. There's, there's over 40 chapters committed to his life throughout the scriptures, probably in terms of volume, only second to Jesus Christ himself. But we've studied, as we've studied David, you see his ups and downs, you see uh, his emotions that come into play all throughout the book of Psalms. And the thing that we appreciate most about him is his humanness. And we see ourselves in him. We see ourselves in his life. Last week we saw how God chose to reject the king that was before him, King Saul. And instead, God anointed this young shepherd boy that no one would have ever dreamed would be the king. But even though he was anointed king, his kingship had not been realized yet. He had not ascended to the throne to take his rightful place yet. In fact, he went back and started tending the sheep just like he had done before. But then the narrative brings us to this story, and that is the story of David and Goliath. I have to confess that, uh, that I wasn't going to preach on this story. I, uh, I have heard so many sermons about David and Goliath, so many stories about David and Goliath, for my entire life that I thought, what else could I add to the story that may be the most popular story in the scriptures? So the contrarian in me decided, well, I'm just not going to preach about it. I'll just skip over it. And I told my wife this, and she told me I was being ridiculous. So like any good husband, I listened to my wife and I said, well, let's look. Let's look at the story of David and Goliath. But it is such a common story. 
It's such a common story that, that even people that aren't in the faith tradition, even people that, that may not share our specific beliefs about the faith, even know this story because it is such a good story. It's probably one of the most popular kids' stories that are out there. It's a story that, that we tell our kids from a very young age. Of course, we edit it. We leave out the part where David jumps on Goliath's body and cut his head off and carries his bloody head all throughout the city. So we cut a lot of that stuff out, but we still do tell our kids this story because there's something about it that just resonates with us. But I think we also like it because it is the quintessential underdog story. And we, as Americans at least, love underdog stories. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies ever was uh, a sports movie called Hoosiers. And if you've ever seen this movie, it's the story about a high school basketball team in a town that, is, that has one traffic light, a very small town. And remarkably, out of the, out of the leadership of a, a wonderful coach, they make it all the way to the state championships in Indiana. And there's this great scene at the very end of the movie where they're sitting in the locker room right about to walk into the state championship. And the camera pans around to the face of every one of those players, and they are scared to death. They are outmatched. They know the team that they are about to face is a bigger team, a faster team, a stronger team, and a taller team. And there is no way that they will be able to beat this team. And then in the locker room, a preacher comes up in front of them and says this, and David put his hand in the bag and took out one stone and sling it and struck the Philistine on the head and he fell dead. Amen. (laughs) And then they go out and I'm not going to tell you what happens if you haven't heard it, but you can only imagine what happened after they heard that locker room speech. So as I thought about it this week, what more can be said about this story? This story that people have preached for for centuries, that people have wrote about for centuries. But the thing that stuck out to me as I read this, this passage this week, and I've read it a million times, the thing that stuck out to me this week was a little phrase in verse 48, where it says this, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. Of course, we all know the story. It's very familiar to us. The the Philistine forces had gathered on one mountain and, and the forces of Israel, God's people had gathered on another mountain and both of them overlooked the valley of Elah. And the Israelite forces knew that they were outmatched. They knew that there was no way that they could win this battle. But what was often part of the practice in the ancient times is in order to avoid kind of excessive blood loss and uh, excessive casualties, often forces would send a champion or would send a representative uh, to the battle lines and those two representatives would fight it out to see who would win the victory. And in this story, it tells us about a man named Goliath, the champion of, of the Philistines. And Goliath was a massive man. Some people think he could have been around seven feet. Other, think, other people think he could have been as much as nine feet tall. But he was massive. He was the quintessential warrior of the Philistine people. 
He was dressed in, in the finest armor of the ancient world. Some people think that his armor alone would have weighed 125 pounds, that, that his spear would have probably weighed 15 to 20 pounds itself. He was a remarkable figure wearing some of the most strongest armor known in the ancient world. And for 40 days, the story tells us that Goliath would come out to the middle of this valley and he would taunt God's people. He would taunt them, asking them to bring forth a champion that he could do battle against. But no one would meet him. No one would meet his challenge until one day when a young boy named David decided to meet the Philistine. One commentator wrote that when he was trying to talk about this story, he said the world was bounded on one side by the arrogant, bullying people of Philistia and on the other end by the demoralized and anxious people of Israel. But David didn't just walk forward into this battle. David ran forward into this battle. And what I'd like to do is just look at three quick things that prompted David not just to walk timidly into battle, but to run with courage into the battle. The first thing we see is that David ran into the battle because he was not captured by fear. He ran into the battle because he was not captured by fear. It says in verse 24 that all of the men of Israel, when they saw the man Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. You see, for 40 days, the Israelite army was captured by their fears. They saw Goliath, they saw his massive army, and they were absolutely overwhelmed by the task in front of them because this army and this man seemed so invincible. Even Saul, who was the rightful king at this time, even Saul himself was afraid. What's so interesting, if you read the story, is that Saul himself was described in giant terms. He was described as a man who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was Israel's giant. Yet instead of going out to meet Goliath, he was hanging out in his tents Because he was afraid. He was captured by fear. You know, the reality is if we are honest with ourselves, very often in our own lives, we are captured by fear. We know what it's like to be captured by fear. We're afraid of things that are unknown in our lives. We're afraid of, of, of things that may or may not happen to our loved ones or to our kids. We're afraid that we might lose people that are special to us. We're afraid we might lose a job. We often have lots of fears. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to be willing to admit that, that often we're not just afraid of the unknown circumstances of our lives, but often we are afraid of other people as well. You could look around this room and look at each other and have to come to terms with the fact that often we are afraid of one another. We are afraid of other people rejecting us. We're afraid of what other people may think about us or what they talk about us when we're not around them. We felt the pain of relationships. We know how much that hurts. So often we try to avoid those relationships for fear of the pain. 
We can call it peer pressure. We can call it codependency. We can call it people-pleasing. But at the end of the day, we are simply afraid of one another. Ed Welch, who's a a Christian author, wrote a, a wonderful book about this thing called the fear of men, of the fear of man. And he said that you can link it to all sorts of things. You can link it to peer pressure. You can link it to overcommitment, to neediness, to self-esteem. You can link it to issues related with jealousy or being overly critical about other people. You can link it to fears about being exposed for who we really are, to second-guessing ourselves, to overly comparing ourselves, or to avoiding other people. All those things, all those issues can stem from a fear of man that often paralyzes us just like it did the army of Israel. And what Welch says is in those moments, people become bigger to us than God himself. And in our story, in this moment, we see that Goliath had become bigger to God's people than God himself was. One commentator put it this way. He said that for the people of Israel, they had a Goliath-dominated imagination rather than a God-dominated imagination. But David was the only one that didn't. He was the only unique one who arrived at camp and was immediately infuriated and dismayed by what he saw. It says in verse 26, And David said to the men who were by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David in that moment was not captured by fear like everyone else was. If he was, he may have quietly slinked away back home to tend his sheep. But instead, he ran into battle to meet Goliath because he was not captured by fear. But was, what was he captured by? And that brings us to the second thing that we see about David. He was not captured by fear, but instead he was captured by a passion for God and for his honor says this in verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You have come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, any fears that David may have felt in that moment were overrun by an intense passion for God and an intense passion for God's honor. You see, he's angry here. He is furious. Not only is he furious at Goliath for what he's saying and defying God's honor, but he's also furious at his own people, the Israelites, because they are refusing to step into battle to challenge this man. But David's angry not just for angry's sake. He's angry because he is passionate about God's honor, and he will fight for or against anyone who chooses to dishonor the Lord Most High. Now think about, for a second, those who are most closest to you. For those you love the most, those people in your life that you are most passionate about. And then think about how you would react if you learned that someone 
was dishonoring or speaking negatively against them, what would you do? Well, if you were that passionate about them, you would immediately rush to defend their honor. You would immediately rush to their defense. In fact, you wouldn't just rush to their defense. You would be passionate about their defense. Why? Because they are so dear to you. You are passionate about that relationship that it forces you into action. It forces you into movement. I can remember when, when one of our children uh, were in one of their younger grades in school, uh, he was starting to have a really hard time with with one of his teachers. It was becoming a a really bad situation. And uh, one one of the things you have to know about me that whenever situations come like that, I'm never the kind of guy that likes to to upset the apple cart. I'm never the kind of guy that likes to make waves. I tend to like being a a go-with-the-flow sort of thing and let things play out uh, as happens often in school. Uh, and And I also like hard teachers. I like teachers that are hard on the kids and challenge them and do all the things that they're supposed to do. So what we did is we kept hearing about this bad situation. So we did our our homework on the situation, tried to find out as best as we could what was going on. And at the very end, we came to this conclusion. And that was that this was just a toxic situation and that our son was actually being hurt in the process. Well, I have to tell you, when we kind of made that decision, when we came to that realization that actually harm was being done, we threw all pleasantries out the window and we went for the jugular. Now, I say that in the most kind of Christ-like way because we tried to be as Christ-like as we could, but we got really intense in this situation. Why? Because we loved our child so much and he was such, at such a tender age that we had to move. We had to act. We had to step into action. And we felt like for us not to do anything at all, for us to just let it happen, would actually be to go against everything that we believed inside about ourselves and about our child. You see, in situations like that, when, when, we, when we have no action, it says one of maybe two things. It says one, that maybe our passions aren't really that strong for that individual. For my wife and I not to act in that situation might mean that we weren't really all that passionate about our very own son. Or it could say another thing, and that is we were more captured by the fear of man than we were for our own affection for our own child. You see, we pull into situations like this all the time. And this was the situation that David was faced with in this story. It was a very black and white situation. He was so passionate about God that his fears disappeared in a moment. What we have to come to terms with is that often the fears that we deal with, often the fears that we wrestle with, can be linked to a lack of passion in our own hearts. C.S. Lewis often said that our issue in life is not that we are too passionate of a people. Instead, we are not passionate enough about the right things. In fact, he said, we are often half-hearted creatures who fool around with all sorts of inconsequential things 
when much more consequential things are all around us. So one of the things that the David story forces us to ask ourselves is this. What do our fears say about our very own passion for God? Because David's passion wasn't just there for passion's sake, but his passion translated into something as well. It translated into confidence. And that's the third thing that we see from this narrative, that David's passion was translated into confidence in God. You see, David sees what is happening here in this story, and he barges into Saul's presence. He barges into the king's presence, and he volunteers to go. And he says this to the king. He says, your servant, speaking of himself, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see, David runs out into the battlefield in all this confidence, and then Goliath begins to mock him in the midst of his confidence, and David shout back to Goliath. He says, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see, David's confidence that was fueled by his passion is remarkable. But the source of his confidence in this story may be the thing that is most important. You see, there's this really interesting scene in the narrative that talks about Saul and David before David had gone out to battle Goliath. And he's in Saul's presence and Saul says, let me dress you in my armor. This would have been the finest armor in the nation of Israel that David could have worn. So David dresses up in this armor and then realizes immediately that this is not going to work. So he runs into battle just in the clothes that he was wearing before. And in the end, it says this in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And it makes an important note. There was no sword in the hand of David. What does the author want us to see? He wants us to see that David's confidence, his passion, was not rooted in the things of man. Instead, it was rooted in the things of God. His confidence wasn't rooted in his armor. It wasn't rooted in any sort of strategy. It wasn't even rooted in his ability to sling a stone and to aim at Goliath's head. His confidence was rooted alone in the ability of God to destroy this enemy. And in some ways, the very same thing is true for you and I. You know, if you're a part of the faith community, if you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then God has called you and I to some pretty tremendous things, some very significant things, some incredibly challenging things too. God calls us to be a part of advancing and building his kingdom in this world 
that so desperately needs God. And often when we think about the things that he calls us to do, we can become very overwhelmed. And we can begin to strategize about how we can accomplish the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. But very often we become so earthbound when we think about accomplishing what God calls us to do. And what happens is our confidence becomes earthbound as well. We place our confidence in the things of this world instead of, call, instead of what God calls us to do, and that is to place our confidence in him. To ultimately remember that at the end of our day, God doesn't just call us to do incredible things, but he reminds us of his presence and that God is with us in the midst of our obedience and calling to serve him. As you know, we, this, is, this is a church plant that you're involved in here this morning. And this church planting thing has been an incredible adventure over the past year and a half. When we moved into this area two years ago, we were overwhelmed by what needed to be accomplished. We were overwhelmed by the challenge of, of planting a church out of nothing. We were overwhelmed by the challenge of our context that is often very difficult. And to be honest, throughout the process... We have often been captured by our fears and wondering whether this would ever happen. So often what is the answer to many of these fears is we strategize. We think about ways to connect with new people and we launch into all sorts of strategies that that help us figure out how to grow a church and how to meet new people and how to do all these different interesting things. And those strategies are right and good and we ought to do those strategies But at the end of the day, we cannot put our confidence in strategies. We have to put our confidence in God who has called us and God who is able. You see, the same thing is true for the most personal things about our lives as well. It's true for our marriages. It's true for our jobs. It's true true for trying to parent kids. At the end of the day, our confidence for these things cannot stem from the things of this world. Because if it does, we will constantly be captured by fears. Our confidence has to come from the Lord who is in our midst. But perhaps most importantly, the same is true for our souls, for our deepest and most inmost beings. Because all of us have to come at some point to the place where we realize that our souls are broken due to our very own sin and rebellion. And we can try through the strategy of this world to do our best to dress ourselves up and to fix ourselves at our inmost being. But in the end, all those things are really inadequate. Instead, we need confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in God, who is the only one that can truly fix our souls. You see, the tendency whenever we read the the David story, or even when we read it to our kids, is to make David out to be the ultimate hero of the story. And there is a lot that we ought to emulate about David, his courage, his passion, his confidence, the fact that he isn't captured by fears. There is a lot of heroic things that David does in this story. 
But to end it right there would be to betray the entire message of Scripture. Because ultimately what David does is he isn't just a hero himself, but he points us to the ultimate hero that is to come. He points us to Jesus. There's this really interesting passage in Matthew 21 where Jesus refers to himself in a very bizarre way. He says this in Matthew 21. He says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, there was a little stone that day in David's story, and that stone sunk into the head of the Philistine and became the instrument of release for the nation of Israel. But Jesus calls himself also a stone, the stone that the builders rejected, and that stone has become the release for you and I from sin and death. You see, in our story, weak David ran out into the battlefield while everyone around him mocked and cursed him, even his very own people. Yet this little child, David, in the midst of all his weakness, won the battle. And in winning that battle, it sent a message that God chooses the weak things of this world to confound the strong. The gospel story tells us that when Jesus hung on the cross, he also was subject to mocking. He was subject to curses, people spitting at him, yet in weakness, he allowed himself to be crucified. He allowed himself to be that weak vessel that confounded the strong so that you and I could experience victory over the greatest enemy, the enemy of sin and death. And this is the Savior who bids us to come. This is the Savior that calls to us and says, Run to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Run to me in faith and confidence that I can save you, that I can fix your souls and that I can give you victory over the greatest enemy, the enemy of sin and death. As you come before him this morning, run to him. The only way to have your souls fixed, the only way to have victory over sin and death.